Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Drilling Into Crypto. I'm your host, Mohamed El Masri. Every week I speak to the leaders that are driving the global financial revolution. Drilling into crypto puts the spotlight on the importance of crypto assets, on energy markets, and on global monetary policy. So Jesse Berger, thanks for being on our show. I want to start off by um, getting an introduction from you about yourself, um, you know, where you come from, uh, what you've been up to, and, and how you ventured into Bitcoin and, 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 and became an author of a book about Bitcoin. Yeah, for sure. So first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, the, the title magic internet money, um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware or listeners are aware, but, uh, that was the, uh, like profile photo of the original Bitcoin subreddit. It had this cartoon wizard that said magic internet money, you know, join us. And so my, my book cover, the, the cover art is a, is a riff or, you know, an adaptation basically of that original meme. And then obviously the name taken from that as well. Okay. Um, but about me, um, my career began in retail banking in 2006, having studied economics and philosophy um, in undergrad. I then went on to work in wealth management, where I managed um, you know, stock and investment portfolios for high net worth clients. I subsequently got my MBA. Uh, I spent a couple years in management consulting, and the bulk of that was uh, managing the market research program for a large um, insurance company in Canada, uh, doing their, their global outreach program, managing their whole global outreach program to, to get feedback on customer experiences. So I did that up until 2018, when I left to basically pursue Bitcoin. And the reasons um, that I wanted to do that actually date back to the beginning of my career in 2006 and, and late 2006 and early 2007. Um, I had been working right as a retail banker, fresh out of my, my, my undergrad program and the global financial crisis struck. And suddenly the, the federal reserve, the central bank of the United States decided, Hey, we need to print $600 billion to bail out the banks. And I was sitting there thinking, wait, I, you know, in economics, I, I sort of guess they remember saying that, you know, the, the, the central bank manages the money and, and helps the economy with its ebbs and flows. But this is a pretty drastic move. I, I didn't really think something like that was possible. And that forced me to ask myself the question, what is money? And I've been chasing the answer to that question ever since. Uh, and it at the time led me to gold because gold was the best example of good, scarce 
money that could not be manipulated. Um, but since then, I've learned that while it, the gold itself cannot be manipulated, it can be centralized. And as such, it has, uh, you know, it, it has an Achilles heel, uh, which has been exposed, obviously. Uh, and so it actually, at the end of the day, does not make for good money. I have since come to learn how and why Bitcoin is a far superior form of money. And basically, I left my job having started dipping my toe into, um, you know, crypto and Bitcoin in 2017 and sort of participating in the markets and seeing what happens. I got caught up in some of the hype and blockchain fixes everything and thinking that that, you know, that was the way. Um, But as I learned more and more about the whole Bitcoin and crypto environment, my sound money roots, my, you know, Austrian economic principles that I taught myself in in my early days of my career came roaring back and, and, you know, clash together with Bitcoin and, you know, Bitcoin just as I was reading more and more, because there's so many brilliant minds out there that are putting out amazing, you know, research materials, whether it's blogs and books, whatever, or videos, I just finally, you know, wrapped my head around Bitcoin to the degree that I could given the the skills and knowledge that I had um, and have been just digging and working on it ever since. And when I left my job wanting to contribute to it, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do when I left my job. Um, and there's a little bit of a story of, you know, I started working on this project. I didn't even know what it was where I was going to explain Bitcoin to people through this PowerPoint presentation. And Bitcoin's a complex subject, right? There's yeah. lots and lots to talk about. So Anyway, I had this balloon, you know, huge slide deck and a friend basically told me, he's like, you know, Jesse, you can't actually present this to anyone, but you have a great skeleton for a book. You should consider turning it into a book. It would be a good way to monetize it. And, you know, a book is an accomplishment. Like it's, you know, it's something cool to do. Like maybe you should think about it. So once I, you know, I slept on it and the next morning I woke up and decided, all right, I'll turn it into a book. And once I made that decision that I was going to make it into a book, I thought about nothing else for an entire year. (laughs) Like it was all about the book. Magic internet money came to life. Magic internet money brought to life. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, look, the book is great. And I think a lot of people need to read it. Um, a lot of those who are getting curious about Bitcoin right now with the recent uh, bullish trends. Um, and it, most of us that went into finance or investment banking and that had this um, mind of, seeing society in a different way um, and believing in alternatives and understanding that, you know, the social construct can always be reshaped and the distribution of wealth is to a certain extent not fair. Um, and those who had this mentality, uh, maybe not full on, maybe, you know, partially uh, believing it and, and partially doubting it because they you know, we didn't at the time leaving university, for example, you're not really 100% sure of what you should believe and, and, you know, what you shouldn't believe, but you have your instincts. And going based on those and venturing into investment banking and finance, you, co- you come out of it seeing a different point of view when you get into Bitcoin because it all resonates. And then you start realizing, you start having aha moments and realizing that, okay, this is why Bitcoin is amazing because I was in an industry that had challenges and I just found a solution. Right. And, and this gets me to, to ask you about, um, and, and maybe I'm going backwards with my train of thought, but fractional reserve banking is, is something that 
you know, uh, goes back to what you were saying when you got into finance and retail banking and realized that, you know, something's off. Yeah. I mean, some people are empowered to create money from nothing. You can tell me that, you know, you're collateralizing a new loan with someone's income or some asset, but you can't, you can't, you don't know with certainty that that asset will remain valuable. And you don't know with certainty that that income stream will, you know, stay to the fruition of the, the term of the loan. Um, and so really you have a license to print money in fractional reserve banking. Banks are special. They get a license to print money because they deem this or that asset valuable. And sure, there's a whole regulatory framework behind it, but it's still effectively arbitrary. It, 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 a certain group is deciding what things are valuable. It's not the market as a whole, individuals as a whole deciding what's valuable. And money is for everyone, is for absolutely everyone. It's not something that should be monopolized. Um, and that's that's the big problem with fractional reserve banking is that it institutionalizes and monopolizes the, you know, the creation and distribution of money in society. And that there are lots and lots of problems with that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, these prob- problems are evident sometimes in, in, in some people's lives, you know, that are close to us. Right. And, and very much if you, so. under- if, you, if you understand what how the system works or how the banking monetary policies uh, function, then, you know, you would, you would see that the, the reason for the challenges that most people are having today with their financial circumstances. It is, it is a driver of economic inequality of income and wealth inequality. Um, in fact, just yesterday, the New York federal reserve released a research paper saying that um, money printing, or I, maybe they had called it quantitative easing in this case, or money printing, I think they, they said, um, the title goes, may contribute to racial income inequality. And then if you look at the data that it shows, it's like, yes, that's, that's exactly what it's doing. But they couldn't say in the headline that it does definitively. It just goes, oh, it may. But like, if you observe anything happening in the world, if you observe start of money printing and then what ends up happening subsequently down the road, we just keep getting worse and worse off. And like we as a society and as people, we need to acknowledge that this may very well be the root of our problems. And, you know, obviously it is my opinion that money is the root of our problems. And it's not that money itself is a bad thing. It's just that money as it is today is poorly constructed and it, it's an, you know, it's an unfair game. It's an inequitable game where certain people have more power and more can, can generate more wealth for themselves easily and others cannot. And that's a problem. I mean, the reason it's poorly constructed in your opinion or from your analysis and research is, is because it, it's, um, it's inefficient, right? And it creates inefficiencies because of the fact that it can um, result in, in, in waste, I, yeah. I want you to, to clarify that for me. I mean, how, how does the current money that we're using result in waste? Um, and and, and, and how, how does Bitcoin come as an alternative to promote growth? So let's maybe think of an example where, you know, we have a clean slate economy and, and sort of Bitcoin is the existing money. And, you know, we only use Bitcoin in the world. So let's let, I know it's you know a leap right now, but let's just make that leap for the sake of the example. The goal of money is to communicate where and when resources are needed, right? When buyers and sellers come together 
they are trying to create, you know, have a mutual exchange that is, or have an exchange that is mutually beneficial. You have a product or service that I want, and I have something of value that I can offer you in exchange. If we have a million different kinds of money, um, then calculating what something is worth and how to fairly arrive at exchange gets a little problematic. When there is one money for everyone, and we all check that same scoreboard, we all know, you know, there's only 21 million Bitcoin. So all the value in the world we're measuring against this 21 million Bitcoin. Prices will fluctuate based on what is being valued by the market, by people. So if we decide that there is a shortage of housing in the world, or the market starts telling you that there's a shortage of housing, um, printing money doesn't bring new lumber, you know, doesn't, doesn't mix more cement, doesn't train more skilled laborers to build those houses. Pricing, however, tells you that, oh, you know, prices are going up because we, we need this stuff. There's demand for it. And so it's pushing up, um, it's pushing up the prices and then the supply needs to adjust to come meet it or, or the, the other way around, rather, I guess the, the supply is saying we need more supply. And so there's demand for these, these products and services we need to reallocate resources. When the markets send the signal through pricing that this is where resources are needed, the markets being us people in society, see those signals and can react accordingly. But when a central bank just prints money because they decide that this is the correct thing to do. They steal value, literally, like inflation is just another word for theft. They steal a little bit of value from everyone. And then they pay to get this thing done that they think needs to be done a certain way. And maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't. And there's lots of inefficiency along the way because all these bureaucrats need to get paid along the way. And it creates false prices because it is, you know, they are end up channeling this purchasing power that they just stole they're channeling that purchasing power into something and maybe they do it correctly according to the market or maybe not. But, but in effect, when they're doing that, because the price signals are not clear, they are redirecting value from what the market would naturally tell you is real. You know, we become disillusioned with what is valuable and what isn't. We're, we're pushing, you know, the central bank or, or government starts pushing value to things that maybe it shouldn't be going to, that the market wouldn't otherwise want it to go to because there's just not that much need for it or, or whatever the, the unique situation is. So the market is the most effective clearing mechanism for al- aligning resources and, and you know getting things where it needs to be. Central bank money printing just interferes with that process. It becomes the air that fuels financial bubbles. Um, and that creates all these imbalances in society. Like the goal of, again, trade is to get things done as efficiently, quickly, accurately as possible so that we all mutually benefit. But when someone interferes with that and starts pushing prices up because they start buying stuff that maybe we don't actually need, it sends a false signal. So we live in an an illusion. We live in a false reality in terms of what we value right now when we base everything in dollars or any fiat currency. If if you have all this money printing happening and a bunch of people receive stimulus checks – Right. And then they have excess money, for example, and they start using that money to buy things that they don't really need. And that's pushing the price of such things up. Yeah. Based on that demand that came out of nowhere. Yeah. And- it doesn't adding, adding money does not add value to society. Right. It just changes the measuring stick of how we measure value. And the goal of, you know, economic interaction of commerce is that we get to the solution as quickly, efficiently, accurately as possible, because then we can just move on to the next and keep things going. That's how progress yeah. happens. Um, but the money printing creates that these these it creates these false signals. And so how you distribute it, you know, UBI or sending checks or whatever, like 
you know, there's going to be a million different little nuances of the, of the effects of it. And it's hard to go into because the system is so complex, it can be very difficult to try to, you know, tease out exactly what the effects of it will be on the whole. But if you think again, in terms of this system where money is just one thing, we all know how to value it and prices can adapt based on the needs, then we can, again, we can be quick, we can be efficient. Um, but when we print money, it, it just creates all these distortions. And that's, again, mm-hmm. it, it, it's why, you know, we're seeing pro- it feels like we're going backwards in society right now, because we're just creating all these illusions and pushing value into things that maybe aren't valuable or aren't necessary. So if, if, if money wasn't, wasn't print, printed, then a lot of those, you know, large corporations, banks, institutions, you know, might go bust and, and not have, uh, you know, any bailouts, which in turn might really affect the economy to a point where a lot of a lot of aspects of the economy might collapse, right? Now the economy is is overblown, right? Like we are way yeah. unbalanced. Everything is financialized. These institutions are not necessarily adding the value they should be. And frankly, when a business is irresponsible, they are supposed to fail. You know, it happens to mom and pop shops. If they don't manage their budget, they go under. Corporations shouldn't get, you know, there's no exception to this. If we reward failure, then we also have to, you know, punish success. But do you think the rationale or the justification behind it is that these large corporations are being bailed out because of the fact that they have a large impact on the economies of those countries but and, we should be we should be asking how we got to the point that they became so central to everything right if they are mm-hmm. so necessary but they're not effective then they shouldn't exist right if they're mm-hmm. not there to serve the people if they're not providing value then we don't want these things we shouldn't want these things and if they fail and go bust is it going to be painful sure there's no way you don't have the boom like be be leery of the boom the fact that just we went shooting up with certain things like where does that come from in terms of you know stocks or real estates or whatever why did we shoot up is real estate really that valuable or is the stock market really that valuable no it's money distorting things what should have happened you know when i started my career in 2006 and the financial bubble happened and it, it wasn't i mean the global financial crisis happened what should have happened is those banks should have gone under and you know what would have happened yeah it would have been painful in the short term but entrepreneurs who were responsible investors who saved their money and who had excess capital available could scoop up those defunct assets, incorporate them into better, more efficient businesses, learn from the mistakes, and we would have better institutions today. But instead we've rewarded failure. And so these same crappy businesses continue. And so when we started going up, now we're just continuing up further, promoting more and more failure. And what's going to happen is, you know, we should have a pretty dramatic crash. The crash is the cure. Like we need that crash. And Mm -hmm. we're very lucky today that we have Bitcoin because it'll help soften the blow of that crash. We didn't have it in 2007, but we have it today. So is that why you see a lot of these large corporations and institutions moving their treasury dollars into Bitcoin? I mean, this is a backdrop or or safe um, haven from from what's going on in the economy today because they may expect another drop from this pump that's taking place for which does not really have any value but it's coming out of money that was created well out of thin air there they see the writing on the wall right like they understand that dollars are now a liability that dollars we know 
factually that they depreciate in value in purchasing power over time. So like if you're earning dollars, you don't actually want dollars. Like the whole point of money is it's a means to an end, right? I want to use money so that I can live a better life. I want to my kids and my grandkids and all that. I want you know my family to have a better life and I want society to be safer and, and a more pleasant place for them. And money is a conduit to that. So I want our world to gravitate towards the best money since everything that happens in the world is driven by money, right? Every, every little thing, every person who's shuffling paper and, you know, building things, they're motivated by money. That that's the incentive mechanism of all transactions in society. If we have crappy money, we have crappy outcomes. We, this is, you know, this should be becoming more and more and more obvious to people. Um, If we have good money and stop thinking of money as a quantitative thing in terms of, well, if only there was more money around in society to buy all the stuff we need, then we'd be fine. No, printing money doesn't create valuable goods, good interactions, good trusted, you know, trustworthy commerce, agreeable commerce. That's what creates value for people in society. And the only way to do that is with higher quality money. And Bitcoin is the highest quality money that the world has ever had. When, when you come back to the point that you need the most efficient and most highest quality money available today, which you're saying is Bitcoin, and that is because of the fact that Bitcoin is, is a coded, uh, has coded monetary policies that allow you to instill trust without depending on third parties because of the fact that the blockchain runs as, as, a, as a trust and transaction protocol and the difference between you know, trust-based systems and proof-based systems allows you to work with Bitcoin on the most efficient way possible and to have a higher quality of life. And I think what would be valuable here is for you to give us some more, um, to shed more color on what I just said with regards to trust-based and and, and proof-based systems. Yeah. So, you know, right now, all the trust in the system is with the central banks to manage the money supply, but, but we don't need to trust them. And frankly, we shouldn't trust them because they consistently abuse that trust. Bitcoin, and also, you know, they create by their very nature uncertainty, right? We don't know what next week's monetary policy is. We don't know how much money they're going to print next week, next month, next year. Um, So when you think, you know, I make $50,000 a year, I make $100,000 a year, my savings are worth, you know, whatever, uh, you know, $75,000. The numbers don't matter. The point is, you have to measure that against all the other dollars in existence. And when you have no clarity on how much money is in existence today or going or into the future, then how do you measure your wealth? You know, it's a faulty scale for measuring. Because Bitcoin's monetary's policy was transparent, and laid out crystal clear. We know there's 21 million coins. There's this predetermined schedule. Everyone knows what it is, or you know, you can go find it very, very easily. Um, there is clarity on money going forward. And that clarity means we don't have to think and worry and plan around, well, if they change the monetary policy, then I have to react. If they print more money, well, now cash becomes that much more less safe. So now I have to react accordingly and do what it, take whatever action that maybe I didn't want to do before. I'm going to take more risk because I'm more worried about my cash being devalued. Bitcoin doesn't have that problem. It's very, very clear. Um, and then why, you know, and that's part of what makes for good money, right? You know, the, yes, the decentralized nature, the, the clarity of monetary policy is great, but there's a number of uh, attributes or characteristics that, you know, lend to money being credible. And so, you know, traditionally those are um, money should be durable, meaning that 
it can stand the test of time that, you know, one Bitcoin today is still one Bitcoin a hundred years from now. It won't deteriorate. Um, money should be portable, meaning it should be easy to take it with you or send it across, you know, across the world, wherever um, there should be very little barriers to moving it. It should be divisible. So we can split it into small quantities, assemble it into larger ones. Um, you know, just like a dollar is divided into a hundred cents, one Bitcoin is divided into a hundred million Satoshis. So 0.00000001 of a Bitcoin is a Satoshi and that's the smallest unit of Bitcoin. Uh, money should be scarce, right? Ideally, we have a very precise idea of how much money is out there in total. So in Bitcoin, we know that there's only ever going to be 21 million coins. But when the money supply, again, keeps changing, it, it makes it very hard to value. So scarcity is something that's good and valuable. Gold in the past was pretty good at being money because it was scarce. We knew that we only tend to find you know, about 2% more gold a year. So we had a, a pretty fixed idea of, of what it would be, but Bitcoin has improved on that to make it perfectly scarce. Um, money should also be fungible. So meaning that, you know, it's very easy to identify authentic units of money and you can exchange them with each other in one unit here. Or, you know, if I send one unit somewhere and then someone else pays me another unit, there's no real difference between them. They're all, you know, identical in nature and they're hard to counterfeit. Um, and so, you know, with Bitcoin, I can check my note. I can check my wallet. If, if Bitcoin arrives in my wallet, then I was sent authentic Bitcoin because it's verified on the network. With gold, you know, maybe my gold is, pla is gold-plated tungsten, which is just a heavy waste metal. Um, and they covered it with gold to, to, you know, to try to counterfeit it. And so it's not that easy to check. You have to have some specialized equipment to check that your gold is really gold. And with those attributes, um, money can fulfill its functions, which are to be a medium of exchange. So it's, you know, we agree that it's useful for sending and receiving, and we're willing to accept it as such uh, in exchange for goods and services. It should be a unit of account, meaning that it is easy or it standardizes the measurement of value so that we can accurately and efficiently determine pricing. And then it should be a store of value. So it has beneficial qualities, you know, that we want to preserve over time and that are worth preserving over time. And Bitcoin checks all those boxes. It's not like gold. It's not a physical possession. And that's a good thing that it's not physical. You know, yeah. I, I can just know my Bitcoin in my head. I, I think Newt Svan, Knut Svanholm, who's written a couple of books on Bitcoin, who's uh, just a wonderful, wonderful speaker on, on all things Bitcoin. Uh, he has a line that says, you know, Bitcoin is blurring the lines between knowing and owning. And that is very, very powerful. Bitcoin's risk reward profile is interesting because, you know, a lot of people that I know are trying to get into Bitcoin and they want to know more. It's just a matter of seeing where Bitcoin was. If you're, you know, denominating it in, in us dollars and, and you're looking at it from that perspective and where it is today, people think, oh, it's too late. Uh, you know, it's already at the highest it's ever been almost. So, you know, what would you tell someone that's looking at Bitcoin's risk reward profile and someone that wants to get in now, but is hesitant on, on, on that? I think you need to start number one, like you just have to start uh, if you've never used it. First of all, experiencing Bitcoin is one of the best things you can do to, to really solidify its value proposition. So buy five bucks or 10 bucks worth of Bitcoin on, on whatever exchange, send it to a wallet that you control. So, you know, you can download, for instance, blue wallet in the iOS or app store. I mean, as an Android or Apple store, um, it's an open source wallet that is just, 
you know, held in pretty high regard in the Bitcoin community. Um, it'll allow you to take possession of your private keys and it'll walk you through the steps um, and send it. You know, you, you bought it with cash on an exchange. And so the Bitcoin is sitting in the exchange. It is at that time, while your name is attached to it, it is still on their balance sheet. They hold it as an IOU to you. You want to remove it and take possession of it yourself in a wallet that you control so that you are the bearer of those Bitcoins, that only you control its fate. Try that and then try sending it back. And you'll, you know, you'll pay a couple dollars in transaction fees along the way. And that's a very small price to feel the experience of sending and receiving Bitcoin and being responsible for it. That will be, that is a huge teacher. That was when I first, you know, bought some, you know, I, I already sort of had a little bit of an idea of what this was all about, but that really helped the light bulb go off for me to, to see the network in action, to really feel it. And there's this like exhilaration when you first send a Bitcoin transaction, when you withdraw it from the exchange and it disappears from the exchange. And there's a few minutes where it's like in cyberspace and did I do something wrong? Did something happen? Where is it? And then a couple minutes later, it arrives on your phone because there is a an intense process going on in the background to ensure that your transaction is very secure. And then when it arrives on the other end, you're like, you know, that that's the big light bulb thing. Like, Whoa, the network just like worked for me and I, I can use yeah. the network. And that's really cool. I remember that experience yeah. <laughs> when, when, you know, you have to wait for a few confirmations, but you're not aware of it. And all of a sudden you're like, where, where's my money? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'll throw it a caution just for, you know, friends, and, you know, people that are just getting started, you know, for those, those, that first test transaction, if you're sending five or 10 bucks, like, listen, if, if you accidentally, you know, copy and paste or type in a wrong letter for the wall and you lose it, you know, a small amount of money is not gonna be the end of the world. If you ever do it with whatever you would consider to be a more significant amount of money, I recommend, you know, a doing a test run first to make sure that the wallet works. So send, you know, if you're going to send one Bitcoin, maybe send 0.01 Bitcoin first, send 1% or whatever, whatever small amount of it first, make sure it gets there that the wallet works and then you send the rest. Um, so for bigger transactions, that's just some advice and always double check the wallet address because you need to be precise. That's part of the personal responsibility element of Bitcoin that no one is responsible but you. If you make a mistake, there's no administrator to contact. It's on you. And, and that's, a, a, again, sort of a feature, not a bug of Bitcoin, that it promotes that personal responsibility. And that's you know something the world is sort of sorely in need of these days because everyone's yeah, relying no, on, on you know, their, you know the, yeah. these safety nets that, that have holes in them. And yeah. we can't do that. That's not, we can't live like that. And that, that's why education around Bitcoin and the use of Bitcoin is very important. And, and very, people very should definitely, so. you know, do their research and always feel free to reach out because the Bitcoin community is happy to help. Right. Uh, unlike, you know, different parts of, of, of um, society and, and, and the socioeconomic uh, ladders, um, it's hard to reach some people, but within the Bitcoin community, it's always easy to reach someone of influence that's willing to help you out. And, you know, and, that, and that speaks a lot about the type of community that's being built around this. And I'll, and I'll say this also, because I think this is also really important. While, while my book, you know, it's, it's for sale on Amazon, there are incredible free resources in Bitcoin. If anything you want to find, especially for, you know, getting up and running and getting started, like my, my book is, you know, explaining the whys of it all, breaking down a whole bunch of different ideas, but you can find everything you need about Bitcoin for free. 
Um, you may have to sift through it because um, there's a lot of noise and sometimes it gets, you know, it, it jams the signal a little bit. So you got you got to work to find the signal. It's on you to be, be critical, um, but reach out to, to known quality Bitcoin, you know, proponents. And, and again, if you don't know who those people are, that, that can also be tricky. I mean, Bitcoin.org is a good place to start, right? I mean, you can start at Bitcoin.org, go to Bitcoin-only.com, go to Bitcoin-resources.com, uh, go to the Nakamoto Institute.com. Um, mm-hmm. There's a number of resources that, you know, I think are run by reputable people that give good sound advice um, so you can go to these places, you know, Bitcoin.org is, is good for, you know, the white paper is there. Um, that's the place I usually go to for the white paper. But like for for a plethora of other resources, I usually go to things like Bitcoin-only or Bitcoin-resources.com or, or Jameson Lop, lop.net, and then go to his resources page is also great. Interesting. L-O-P-P.net, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll take these down as well. Yeah, those Thanks are all, so yeah, there's lots and lots of good resources out there. So, you know, start with those. They, they have all sorts of subjects divided up. So, you know, depending on your particular area of interest or what you're trying to accomplish, uh, they break things down for you. Well, I'd like to wrap this up by taking two or three minutes of your time to tell us where you see this going uh, in the next, and I'm not going to say, you know, five years or three years, just really in the next 12 months. And uh, because things are moving really fast and I would expect what I thought would happen in five years would probably happen in a year and a half on this pace. Yeah. It seems like the pace is definitely picking up. I mean, you know, price is obviously a very big indicator of, of things. So uh, in that regard, pace has definitely started to quicken, but legitimacy has also been improving dramatically, right? It's being accepted by very well-known, very highly regarded figures uh, in finance around the world. Um, it is also now, infiltrating places of power in the sense that, you know, Cynthia Lummis, who is the, a new senator in Wyoming, is an open Bitcoin advocate. And she is going to be on the Senate Banking and Finance Committee now. And, she, you know, so that's a very powerful thing that Bitcoiners are starting to move up in the world. Um, we're seeing them in, in higher and higher places of more power. And that's going to just help a, a, it de-risks Bitcoin because, I, you know, I think the U.S. is doing a pretty good job on the whole of being welcoming. Obviously, there are some issues being debated about privacy and, and things. And, and there's a battle coming to head between, you know, Bitcoin's uh, pseudonymity in its transactions versus, you know, the, the wants of government to know everything, which they are not entitled to. Um, so there's a little bit of a battle that'll come to a head in that regard. And, and we'll see more and more of that, I'm sure, over the next 12 months. But Bitcoin is reinforcing itself right now. So that, that's happening too. And that's a very good thing. It's always been doing that, but that's also expediting. And that's just great to see. Um, you know, I don't really want to get into price predictions or anything in the next 12 months other than like, you know, Bitcoin's going higher. As far as I'm concerned, there is a lot of money lining up to get into Bitcoin because cash is a liability and getting devalued. And there's a lot of it out there. And Bitcoiners know what Bitcoin is. They under, there's a correlation between, you know, understanding Bitcoin and wanting to hold it for longer and longer time periods. So it's going to be harder and harder to get more Bitcoin. So the only way to pry it loose is going to have to, you know, the price is going to have to get driven much higher to pry it loose from very strong hands that hold it. The supply scarcity. Yeah. And, and, and again, that's a good thing. Like 
that's that's good for bitcoin it's good for the world like the, the you know if i had to leave if i don't know if we're wrapping up yet but if i had to leave on on one thing it's that uh a bitcoin monetary standard because it is credible because it is open where anyone anywhere can use it it does not discriminate in any way shape or form that's a good thing for the world. Yes, enemies can use it. Yes, criminals can use it. But you know what? A bank robber uses a car for a getaway car. Do we ban cars? You know, <laughs> uh, the the current monetary system launders two trillion dollars of money a year through through its pipes. You know, have we closed out the monetary system? And so again, a really good thing because we're we need to work together to build the best future for us. And Bitcoin is the best tool that we have to accomplish that. Well, there you have it, Jesse Berger, Magic Internet Money. Awesome. Thank you so much, sure. Mohammed. Thanks for drilling into crypto with us. If you enjoyed our discussion, please give us a like on your podcast app or social media. And don't forget to subscribe. Join us next time when we will deliver more perspectives on crypto asset mining, energy markets, and the global financial revolution.